Joshua 10, beginning at verse 16 down to verse 43. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Excuse me. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the neck of, necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the end of the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded. And they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. On that day, Joshua took Makeda and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish. And they came and camped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left, none, left him none remaining. From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And all the people who were in it, he utterly destroyed that day, according to all that he had done to Lachish. 
So Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron. And they fought against it. And they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword. Its king, uh, all its cities and all the people who were in it. He left none remaining according to all that he had done to Eglon. But utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Deber. And they fought against it. And he took it and its king and all its cities. They struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Hebron, he did to Deber and its king, as he had done to Libna and its king. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south, and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeah. All these kings and all their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And that is God's inerrant, holy, inspired word, and may he bring his blessing as we hear it read and proclaimed. You know, when we consider God, I think often that one of our greatest challenges that we have in respect of trusting, believing, walking in faithfulness to God is our very small view of God in comparison to how big we view ourselves, how big we view our problems, how big we view our trials, how big we view the issues that surround us, how big we view our government and its hand and authority, even how big we view science's attempt to silence the Christian religion and faith that we have. And, and we, we look at all of these things and they seem like huge mountains to us. And we begin to, in our minds, make God seem so small in comparison to them all. And, and when we do that, whether consciously or out of fear, it, it, it affects us. These kind of challenges cloud our expectations of God, don't they? We suddenly think that there's no way God can help or come and assist us in these things. They cloud not only our expectations of God, but our zeal for God and even our prayers to God. And, and this is not new for God's people to experience. Remember when God visited Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, and he came and he, he said... This coming year, that promise I made to you 25 years ago when you were 75, I promised you that I would give you a son. And I'm here now to fulfill it. You're 100, Sarah will be 90. It's going to happen. And you remember how it went that when Sarah was listening to this, what did she do? She laughed. And it wasn't this sort of chuckling laugh, wow, this is going to be cool. It was this sort of cynical laugh. 
You've got to be kidding. And, and the Lord challenged her. It's at that point that the Lord made the first of many times this same statement gets made throughout Scripture. I'm only going to reference four of them. But this is the first of many times that God looked and said, Look, is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you believe that? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah laughed at the promise of God. It doesn't end there. You get to Matthew 19. The rich young ruler. And Jesus challenged him with his sense of security and his self-righteousness. And basically said, no, you do not inherit the kingdom of God with your own righteousness. And, and everyone thought for sure if anyone was going to be saved, it could have been this rich young ruler. Look at how good he was in all of his life and how God blessed him throughout all of his life. Surely this man is saved. And Jesus said, no, you've got idols in your life that you're not willing to give up. And that young man went away sorrowful. Jesus loved him, but he, he did not uh, convert to Christ. And the disciples look and hearing all that Jesus taught said, well, if he can't be saved, who then can be saved? Remember what Jesus said in response to that? With men, it is impossible. It is impossible for you to save yourself. If you haven't learned that lesson yet, I'm looking out. I know most of you, if you haven't learned that lesson yet, you can't save yourself. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's why we keep praying for our lost children. Because we believe all things are possible for God. He can save. And he can save the worst idolatry that's out there. As you go to Jeremiah 32. As Jerusalem is being destroyed and as the people are being carried away captive and God makes the promise, I will bring you back. Jeremiah having to be encouraged with that thought. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing. What? Too difficult for you. We're told this often in scripture. And again you get to Luke 1.37. And the same thing there. When, when Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel. And told that she is going to give birth to the son of God. And she says but I haven't been with a man. How is this possible? And what does the angel say there? For with God nothing will be impossible. I want you to think, with all of those examples of that authority of God's word reminding us nothing is too hard for the Lord, all things are possible, nothing's too difficult for God, with God nothing will be impossible. I want you to look back in chapter 10 at verses 14 and, and 15, and you, you look here, and, and what, what are you amazed with? What are people most amazed about? 
This day when God in his power and authority made the sun to stand still and made the moon to be still. There has never been a day like that ever in the history of the world where the world stopped spinning so that God could give victory to Joshua. And science says that's impossible to happen because if the world stopped spinning, we'd all die. There'd be no gravity, etc., etc., etc. And you're saying, why am I saying that the world had to stop spinning? Because that's how we move around the sun. We get the rotation of the earth, the spinning of the earth that brings the sun in its 24-hour cycle around us and the moon as well. And God made it all stand still. For the victory of Joshua. What confounds so many is. How could the sun and moon stand still for a whole day. But when you read verse 14. What amazed the writer here. It wasn't that God could do that. Because God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. What amazed him. Was that God would listen to the voice of a man. And do it. And that's the thing that we miss. Of course God can make the earth stand still for a day. He created it. This is the God who said, let there be, and it was. And even today our scientists are just discovering the vast number of galaxies that exist that they can't even count. And God created that all with the word of his power. Of course he can do that. But what is amazing is that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. And why did God heed the voice of Joshua? Because here was his servant sent to do kingdom work in the name of the Lord. And God had declared to him, I will fight for you. Ask of me. Ask of me whatever you will. And I will do it. For the Father to be glorified. See, the problem isn't with God's power. (laughs) It's with our faith. Our prayers. And the thing that I want you to note as we look at God delivering all of this land into the hands of Israel. And it was the Lord who was doing this. Is that the Joshua here wasn't praying for personal glory. Joshua wasn't praying for personal prosperity. He wasn't asking God to just simply bless him so that he could have a comfortable life. And the same thing in respect of what we heard from Genesis 18, Matthew 19, Jeremiah 32, Luke 1. Is that all those times when it's mentioned that with God nothing is impossible. It's related to the kingdom of God and the glory of God and the work that God has come to do in establishing his kingdom on the earth. Nothing is impossible for him. That's an awesome thought, isn't it? An encouraging. And when our prayers, especially when our prayers are kingdom focused, look, it's a very small thing. And and I'm not minimizing people's health when I say this. Don't, Don't misread that. It's a very small thing to ask God to heal someone who has some disease or needs an operation and needs strength to endure it and get through it and all. It's a very small thing for God to do that. Those are easy prayers. To pray. For God to do a work 
in bringing forth the glory of his kingdom. When we make such prayers, and our prayers are kingdom-focused, our Lord hears, and he fights for his people. This is the same God. We, we know Hebrews 13.7, don't, don't we? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. He is the one who fights for his people. And he in his authority, my dear friends, has delivered this world into the hands of the church to go and make disciples, to teach his authority, his grace, his gospel, to bring forth that kingdom of God on the earth. It's not to make nations kingdoms of God. It's to build and labor in his church for the kingdom of God to come. And God has done this. Twice we hear in, in our passage in verse nine, three times, verse 19, verse 30, and verse 32, the Lord delivered these nations into the hands of Israel. And that word, first of all, to understand that word delivered, that word means that he gave them over for judgment. You look at verse 19. The Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Now take them. God has delivered them over, given them over for judgment. And God has delivered them into Israel's hand in a just way. I'm sure, let's, let's think about this first and foremost. I'm sure many of you, when you're reading this, you're wondering, how in the world could God uh, command Israel to go and destroy all of these nations, all of these people, to, to kill everyone that was in that land? Well, simply put, God was exercising his just judgments upon a wicked people. It's but a prelude to that great day of the Lord when all are raised and made to stand before the judgment seat of God and receive from his hand his justice. And you read in verse 23, for a third time these five kings are listed and they are listed there again for this third time. The, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. They, they're listed here because they're being judged and they're being condemned by the Lord. Just as the whole land of Canaan had, be, had been already judged by God. Their cup of sin had become four, full. If you were to look back in, in Deuteronomy and Genesis, you would see that God had already forewarned that these nations would be vanquished, would be brought under his wrath and justice because of their wickedness. Deuteronomy 9 verse 4, it is because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord is driving them out from before Israel. And it isn't that these nations didn't know or understand or have some history with God. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 14, 18. And, and you think here, in relation of the king of 
Jerusalem. The king of Jerusalem. He comes from a, a descendants of, of kings who used to serve God. Melchizedek, Genesis 14, 18. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Adoni Zedek, the king that Joshua is dealing with, the king of Jerusalem. His name is the same, means the same thing as Melchizedek. It means the king of righteousness. He held on to the name of his forefathers. But he did not hold on to the God of his forefathers. You go to Genesis uh, chapter 15. Go to the next chapter. And you see God as he's dealing with Abraham. God knows where these nations are headed. And he says there in verse 16. He says in the fourth generation. Your people will return here. We're 450 years later from Abraham. When God says it. But he says here, they're going to return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And this is after having destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which is part of the same land. God had already destroyed all of that region because of the vileness of their wickedness. And he said to Abraham, it's going to take another 450 years before their cup of sin is filled, and I'll judge them. This is God. This is the authority and the might of God. And he's dealing with a land that was not ignorant of him. He is dealing with a people who followed the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were enemies of God's kingdom. And he's delivering them justly into the hand of Israel. And, and Joshua makes that clear, that as kingdom people coming in, this is what awaits those who will not confess the lordship of Jesus and bend the knee. Instead of these nations, as particularly these kings that Joshua is dealing with here, instead of them being like Nineveh when the prophet Jonah came in and, and pronounced the, the judgment of God upon the city and saying in 40 days God is going to come and destroy the city. And, and instead of being like Nineveh when they heard that truth, even the king of Nineveh got on his knees and, and called the people to repentance and sacrifice sackcloth and ashes and said, let's petition their God to see if he will have mercy. You think if these kings had done that, that God would have showed mercy? Absolutely. Absolutely he would have. Because God does not change in who he is. But they heard what had been done to Jericho and I. They heard what had been done to to King Sion and King Og uh, on the other side of the Jordan. They heard all of these things and they knew that the Lord had given this land to Israel. And instead of them repenting, bowing the knee to God, they became like Pharaoh, hardened in the deceitfulness of their sin, hardened in their hearts with the gravity of immorality that had encompassed the land, God had given them over to their sinfulness. 
And we know they were cursed of God because they were hung on five trees. They were declared to have committed sins worthy of death. And they were displayed as being cursed by the Lord. Deuteronomy 21 verse 33. Anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. God has delivered them justly. And what they do after that is they erect another pile of stones, another cairn for Israel. This is the fourth cairn, the fourth witness to Israel of God's just condemnation of those who forsake him, who exchange his glory for idolatry. This was to be, again, a witness to Israel of what happens When you profane the name of the Lord and give yourself over to idolatry, the wrath of God is what waits for you. And in that light, we as Christ Church today should actually fear for our nation. We should fear for those who within the church have joined the idolatry of our day for fear of men. But we should also, in our own hearts, realize what grace has met us. We know well Romans 8, when it comes to dealing with a God who would deal so justly with, with nations, who would deal so justly for the sake of bringing forth his kingdom. We can't help but stop and remember how we have been delivered. But delivered in the sense of being saved, not handed over to judgment. And why is that? It's because God in his wondrous grace did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. You know, people often think, when it comes to Christianity, that we, we have a religion that, that makes us privileged people, but it's not privileged in the sense of what they understand. We haven't been excused of our sin and our sinfulness. God has dealt with our sins very justly. It's just He hasn't dealt with us for what we deserve. He has dealt justly with His Son for what we, what we deserve. He delivered up the Lord Jesus for us all. He handed his son over to the judgment we deserved so that we could be delivered from his hand of justice. It's amazing grace that has met us. And as Paul even speaks about that amazing grace that meets us, he he beginning before that and and after that, brings forth the implications for us. What do we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? You have, dear Christians, but to look to the cross and know God is for you. (laughs) Why? Because he delivered his son up to deliver you from your sin. He did not spare the Lord Jesus an ounce of the justice that you deserved so that you can know God is for you. Isn't that a 
Isn't that wondrous? Who can, who can take that in? But he also says the other implication. God is for us. No one can be against us. Because we are in Christ. But there's another implication. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? If God has given you the paramount, penultimate gift that he could give. His son. Then why? Wouldn't you pray and say, God, help me. God, help your church. God, come and deliver us in this day. God, come and fight for us. That encouragement that we gain from understanding that grace in Jesus Christ. Do you have it? Do you fear men? Or do you walk in that assurance God is for us. Look to the cross. And not only did he deliver them justly into the hand of Israel, he also delivered them completely. With these five kings and their armies eliminated. You see going on in in chapter 10 from verses 28 down to verse 39. You see this program Israel begins of sweeping through the southern region from Makeda down to Eglon and over to Hebron and Libna, and they basically lay hold of the whole southern region of the Promised Land. And there's a repetitive formulaic account of that conquest, and it it has purpose. Why is it repeated six times of what they did? Because the Lord wants Israel to have a record of how they defeated all of these kingdoms. And it begins with verse 30. And again in verse 32. And that's the implication all the way down until you get down to verse uh, 40 uh, and uh, 40, uh, 42. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel. The Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel. The Lord God of Israel commanded the utter destruction of these nations because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. The Lord delivered them. And as a reminder again and again to us as God's people, to us as Christ's church, that the Lord our God is with us. And if we understand that Emmanuel principle, how does that work in our thoughts and in our prayers and in our attitude to the time that we are in? That promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, translates into a thought and an activity. What have we to fear from men? God, our God, is with us. Without the Lord, Israel would have been destroyed by these nations. But with the Lord, these nations were delivered into their hand. Think of Psalm 124, how it expresses that particular truth. Without the Lord, if that the Lord had not been on our side. Yes, say it again. If that the Lord had not been on our side. What's the next one? We would have been swallowed. 
Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And it's always and ever that that constant truth that Israel had to grab hold of and often forgot and neglected that the church has to grab hold of, but we often neglect is that our efforts, our strength, our expertise is not what wins the day. It is the Lord who is at work for his people. You see the Lord demonstrating his ability, his authority, his willingness to exercise the word of his power to save his people. As one commentator put it, We set the workings of Joshua, chapter 10, uh, verse 28, down to verse 39. Set the context of those words in line with John 3.16 that you know so well. God so loved Israel, he gave them this land and delivered all their enemies into We can say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever should believe in him would have eternal life. They will not perish. But there's more as the word of God continues on. God so loved us, his people. He gave his only son who destroyed the works of the devil and who disarmed the powers and principalities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. You think about the Lord who fights for his people. Christ in his death on the cross. You see, we're, we're always again brought back to the cross and that work of Christ on the cross. He not only delivered us from the justice and the wrath of God, But Jesus in the cross also dealt with our enemies. We we no longer have an enemy who is able to take us out of the grace and the hand of God. We no longer have an enemy who is able to work the fear of death in us. Because Jesus has conquered that enemy. We no longer fear the powers and principalities that surround us as Christ's church. Because the Lord has disarmed them, has made a spectacle of them. He has triumphed over their wickedness and their evil for the sake of his people that they should have no hold on us. That means we have no reason to bow in fear to what society is striving to reign and rule over us with. Because the wickedness of our day has been disarmed against us. The sinfulness of this world doesn't rule us. The immorality and corruption does not have dominion. It's been broken. Only these churches that are messing 
of the immorality that's around us, the Sodom and Gomorrah immorality, would understand what Christ has done to deliver us from that. They wouldn't fear man. And with that, we can go forward with the gospel in the authority of Christ to speak his truth and he will fight for us. Do you believe that? No. Do you believe that as you present, as we heard this morning, courageously and gently, the truth of God to a world that is bought a lie, do you believe that Jesus will fight for you? He will. Because as we see in verses 40 to 43, Jesus not only delivered them justly, delivered them completely, he delivered them triumphantly into the hands of Israel. There was a thorough, consistent victory Israel experienced as they went sweeping down in that whole southern area of the land of Canaan. A consistent victory because, as you see there, the end of verse 42, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. It doesn't mean all of the battles had been fought. When we go into chapter 11, there's still many more battles to be fought. But what it does mean is this, is that Christ demonstrated his covenant-keeping power and faithfulness to his redeemed and precious people. Let me say that again. He demonstrated his covenant-keeping power and faithfulness to his redeemed and precious people. They had battles left to fight, but were they going to fight them in their own strength and in their own wisdom and in their own efforts? No. Christ has shown them, I am with you. I will give you courage and strength to do this work. My friends, again, it's the same Jesus who is with us today as his people. When he calls us to fight that good fight of the faith, we do it because the victory has already been accomplished. Our inheritance has already been sealed to us. We have an eternal weight of glory waiting for us. We fight the good fight of the faith faith, knowing that the victory has already been gained. We're dealing with our generation. We're resisting the devil. We're fleeing temptation. We're putting to death idolatry and immorality and coveting within our own lives and within the realm of the church. We're dealing with these things. It isn't that those things are, are suddenly gone from us. We, we face that challenge every day to fight that good fight of the faith. But we fight in a power and a strength that is not our own. The Lord our God fights for us. And it is within his kingdom, within his church, that we have our greatest warfare. To ensure that the world around us does not corrupt the righteousness of God. The world will be the world. <laughs> That's not capitulating. It's just understanding. They're there being who they are. But we are called to be a people 
who walk in the victory and triumph of Christ, who, as Paul would say, have died to sin in the death of Christ, but have raised to righteousness and new life in the resurrection of Jesus. And so, sin shall not have dominion over us. We're not under the law. We're under grace. And so, as God's kingdom people, We pursue righteousness. We pursue holiness. We pursue peace. We pursue godliness. We pursue these things because the victory has been gained for us by Jesus. Do you believe that? The Lord fights for us. So dear Christian, understand when you read this, you're reading what our church today Needs to, needs to apply. God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord, our God, is fighting for us. Are we in that fight with him? Let us pray.